El Fanboy, Episode 17. Hi everybody, what's going on? This is Mario Francisco Robles MFR here with you, and this is the 17th edition of the El Fanboy Podcast. You lucky ducks! It's only been, what, four days since episode 16? That was uh, last Friday, today's Tuesday. So you're getting a lot of uh, El Fanboy action in just a few uh, days here. If you think about it, we had last week's episode on Friday... Uh, I had that IGN piece go up, Why the World Needs a Wonder Woman, which if you haven't read, you should head on over to IGN and do that. It's still up in their movie section. They continue to cycle it because it's getting an awful lot of comments, though. Full disclosure, it's amazing to me how many of the comments are from people who clearly did not read the piece. It's it's actually like astounding. I would say like 85% of the nearly 1,300 comments so far are from people who read the headline, got it into their heads what they thought it was about, and then just raced to the comment section to decry what this column was about, even though it's not about what they think it's about. (laughs) Um, Basically, I wrote a piece about how in these sort of troubled times that we currently live in, you know, there's a lot going on. It's been a sad couple of weeks in the news. You got, you know, celebrities killing themselves. You have Zack Snyder's daughter. We found out she committed suicide. We had the attack in Manchester. We uh, No one can seem to speak to each other in a civil way online anymore. There's all this new research that here in the United States, we've never been more divided than we are between the blue and the red states, that there's no longer any purple. Everyone's just mad at each other. There's no common ground. You know, there's so much strife going on. And I wrote a, I wrote a column about how it'd be, you know, it, it's perfect. It's perfect timing for an optimistic movie about true heroism to come out where, you know, with a message of love and compassion and unity. So that's what my column was about. It wasn't really about Wonder Woman's gender. It wasn't a feminist thing. It wasn't anything like that. But like 85% of the comments are these like conservative, you know, uh, sort of, I don't want to call them misogynist, but like it's, it's this whole like fucking stop telling me how important it is for female heroes. Let me just enjoy the movie for what it is. This is liberal propaganda. Like it's amazing to me how many comments like that there are on that piece, considering the first draft of that column didn't even include the feminist angle. I got a note from the folks at IGN that, you know, they feel it would be more complete if I included some of that in there. So I literally threw in like one token paragraph about the significance of Wonder Woman for female fans around the world and for young girls and whatever, and and what the um, creator of the character had in mind when he came up with Wonder Woman. So I threw in this one little just like one little thing just to make it more complete. And you got all these people talking about how it's some pro-feminist liberal agenda thing. And I'm like, I don't know where that came from. You clearly didn't read the fucking piece. But anyway, that was a total tangent I didn't mean to go on. Uh, Point was, in the last few days, I've been putting out a lot of content. 
We had episode 16. We had the IGN column. We had the video review for Wonder Woman. We had the video version of episode 16, which, by the way, I apologize for the audio going out of sync. Uh, I suspect it's because I recorded that on my uh, seven-year-old iMac, and I guess the processor just didn't couldn't keep up with me. So I'm sorry about that. If I try that again, I will do it on one of my MacBook Pros, which are newer and run much smoother. Um, but yeah, so I've been putting out a lot of stuff, and here we go. Let's keep the marathon going, you fuckers. This is the 17th episode. There's a lot of news to cover. Um, and, you know, sometimes I sort of like come up with how I want to start the show, uh, kind of like whatever my opening rant or monologue is going to be. This particular time, I just decided I'm going to wing it. So I don't, I, I think I've taken up enough of your time with my opening ramblings. Uh, and since I don't have a hell of a lot to say right now, because it's only been four days since the last show and there hasn't been that much to talk about that isn't going to be covered in the news section. So you know what? We're for we're gonna dive right in to this week's news. We're gonna start things off with the box office. There is an awful lot to say about this week's box office. So that is exactly where we're gonna start. First of all, we know that Wonder Woman had a big weekend, and that was a story I was tracking for a while. It's amazing to me how much things jumped up. I can't remember a movie that went through this sort of um, uptick in its expectations in just a matter of weeks. If you guys recall, a couple of weeks ago, the initial tracking on the movie was $65 bucks. At the time, I said that didn't seem all that realistic to me. I'm expecting something closer to $90 million. Well, those expectations started to climb. The closer we got to the release, the higher those expectations went, especially as the reviews came out and it was certified fresh and everyone started saying, hey, we may have a phenomenal DC movie on our hands here. So the uh, everything started to climb up. And I would say on like Thursday or maybe it was even Friday morning, all of a sudden news broke that it looked like instead of 65 the movie was going to make $86 million. That's a $21 million jump uh, for those of you paying attention. And that was Friday morning. Then by Friday night, they were saying $91 million. <laughs> Then on Saturday somewhere, they started talking about $97 or $98 million. Then on Sunday, finally... As the tallies started coming in, they said the movie would, was going to close out at $100.5 million. Now, you might notice, for those of you who follow me on the Twitter, at I underscore am underscore MFR, you might notice that I, while I was initially tweeting quite a bit about those weekend figures on Friday, I kind of went radio silent on the box office figures on Sunday. And that's because I had a feeling that even 100.5 million was too low. I had a feeling that when those weekend actuals came in, they were going to jump up. And guess what? They did jump up. The actuals came in, and it looks like Wonder Woman made an estimated $103 million. Uh, it's $103,251,471. Bucks. 
for like a worldwide haul of around 228 million fucking dollars. So, holy crap. And then, by the way, if you guys recall, I started, uh, you know, <laughs> tweaking my own predictions last week. Uh, I mentioned that I no longer thought it was 90. I, I was thinking it might do 105. So it looks like I ended up being pretty close. 103.2 is pretty close to 105. You know what I'm saying? So congratulations to Warner Brothers. Uh, congratulations to Patty Jenkins and Gal Gadot, Chris Pine, everyone involved with Wonder Woman. We've got a big hit on our hands here. But you know what's an even bigger deal as far as I'm concerned? It's the cinema score. Because it got a cinema score of A, and when you combine the cinema score of A with the fact that it's 93 on Rotten Tomatoes, that means the word of mouth on this is going to be substantial. That means that this is going to be something that has some serious legs on it. No, I'm not talking about Gal Gadot's legs, you fucking perverts. Um, this thing is going to, it's going to, it's going to repeat next week, which more on that in a bit. Um, and what's interesting about this, what's really interesting about this is I, I was speaking to a friend of mine over the weekend who's a big like Marvel fanboy and, and unlike me, who's kind of, I, I, you know, I, I just like good movies. I don't try to label myself one way or the other, but this friend of mine, he's very much in the Marvel is awesome. Fuck DC sort of camp. I was talking to him about it. And, and what's interesting about this is all the DC movies have made some serious money. All of them. And they've all opened pretty damn strong. All right? Batman v Superman had you know, a huge global launch. Remember, I, I off the top of my head, I think it had a worldwide haul of like almost $400 million or something like that in just the first week. And I might be, I might be on crack. It, it, for some reason, my mind is going between 263 and $397 million in its opening weekend. I think it was 397, but I, I don't feel like actually researching that. But I know it was huge, okay? I know it was huge. Uh, I know Suicide Squad also had a really, really big opening. And what has always hurt these movies, though, is the word of mouth, is that things start to drop off dramatically after that first weekend. And what's interesting about Wonder Woman is it's going to be the first DC movie that has that hot DC open, but will not suffer that second weekend curse because the word of mouth is actually really, really positive. So this thing could be a fucking monster. If you're, you know, anyone paying attention out there, this thing is going to be a monster because if these other movies, even if you don't want to say they were bad, you know, uh, Man of Steel, Batman v Superman, Suicide Squad. You know, I think at best we can all admit that they were divisive. Okay, uh, we'll, and we'll uh, we'll just be diplomatic. We'll just say they were divisive movies with so-so to negative word of mouth, and those movies still ended up making a considerable amount of money. Can you imagine what Wonder Woman's going to do now that it's got? the fan response, their critical response, and it has that pedigree of being the number one movie in the world right now. It's having a whole, it's becoming a cultural moment that we're having. Uh, this could be a huge, huge turning point. As I said on last week's show, Wonder Woman could, could mark a huge pivot point for the DC Extended Universe as we know it. 
But part of what I was talking about with my friend was, you know, it's interesting what happens when we think about DC and the money they make and the money that they have made for Warner Brothers. Because what's interesting is the DC movies have opened huge despite the negative reviews. In certain, in many key ways, DC movies open bigger than Marvel movies. Even though most of us have it in our minds that Marvel is the king of the superhero genre, it's very notable that the DC movies almost always open bigger than most Marvel movies around them. And the big difference maker ends up being the reviews and the longevity. But, and also the big difference maker also is that Marvel doesn't spend nearly as much and have as much writing on each movie as these DC movies. That's why, like, when we think about DC movies, we think of them as underperforming. You know, they, th- that term gets thrown around a lot. These DC movies are underperforming. And how can that be the case? How can they both be underperforming but also surpassing Marvel's figures? How, how do those two things make sense? And it's because Marvel tends to keep those budgets fairly under control. And the thing, the overall product line that they're putting out there is such a well-oiled machine at this point that even if a movie doesn't make a gajillion dollars, it's not going to derail the whole thing. These DC movies so far have been very expensive, especially Batman v Superman. You know, they, they've poured a lot of time and resources and expectations and pressure into these movies. So when they don't crack a billion, when they don't give the studio a huge return on their investment, we look at them as underperforming. But with Wonder Woman, we finally have an example of a movie that I I believe is going to overperform. I have a feeling that Wonder Woman is going to do some some serious numbers and it's going to bring in some serious cash for Warner Brothers. And the A Cinema score, by the way, you know, Jeff Johns, the you know, the 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 current DC chief creative officer, the DC co-president, the guy who is supposedly now overseeing the entire DC Extended Universe, uh, a role he inherited from Zack Snyder, um, he had an interesting response. It was very subtle. It was very simple. But when CinemaScore announced that Wonder Woman was, was, was granted an A, he tweeted out something along the lines of, that was the goal. And that tells me very clearly that one of their main you know, goals with Wonder Woman was to make a people pleaser. And that in general, the people behind the scenes at Warner Brothers have had like a paradigm shift with what they want to accomplish with these DC movies. Because Zack Snyder, if you'll recall, was not really trying to make a people pleaser. You know, with both Man of Steel and especially Batman v Superman, he was trying to make something that was a little more quote unquote challenging something a little more like metaphysical and dark and and something to try to really dig beneath the surface and, and try to tell a sort of deeper story. By the way, I don't think he succeeded in pulling those off, by the way, his high-minded ideas. You know, they were in there, but I don't think that, they, that you know, he has the uh, filmmaking acumen or storytelling ability to actually flesh these ideas out. But the point is he was trying to use these DC movies to tell very challenging stories. And Jeff John seems to have come in there with the mindset with the you know with the mindset of no, we need to send people home happy. We need to create crowd-pleasing 
um, you know, spectacles for people. And so an A cinema score is a definite indication that Wonder Woman is a crowd pleaser, that people walked out of that feeling very enthusiastic about it. And the fact that he says, like, that was our goal, you know, it, it kind of lends some insight into what his perspective is on what these movies should be. He wants these movies to be people pleasers, whereas Snyder was trying to steer things in a different direction. Um, so that, yeah, that's sort of spoke volumes to me. Uh, let's take a look at the other things that rounded out the top five before we get into some further analysis as to what actually, you know, Wonder Woman actually did. So uh, opening up a number two as the sort of counter-programming to Wonder Woman was Captain Underpants, uh, the first epic movie it's called. It opened at $23.8 million. I have to guess that it's actually on the low side. I, I, I think I think Fox was hoping that this would work because the DC movies traditionally have been sort of on the darker side, so they weren't necessarily viewed as family entertainment. So opening up a family-oriented cartoon opposite it was going to do well. Uh, but as it turns out, Wonder Woman ended up being very much a family-oriented movie. And most families, most mothers and women and you know, grandmothers and in general, most family audiences this weekend, I believe, flocked towards Wonder Woman. Um, so Captain Underpants didn't really succeed as the counter-programming that it was probably hoping it would be. Um, you know, right now, we don't know what the budget was on Captain Underpants, but as far as animated you know, features... 23.8 mil is, is, not, is nothing really to write home about. So just keep that in mind. We'll see what happens in weeks to come. I have a feeling it's just going to get completely lost in the shuffle. And that's, you know, and, and that's saying something, too, because the reviews for Captain Under, Underpants were actually pretty good. It had somewhere in the mid-80s on Rotten Tomatoes. So uh, this really was a case of Wonder Woman you know, not really needing to be counter-programmed. It, it basically appealed to everyone. It appealed to grown-ups, it appealed to action fans, and it appealed to families. That, that, that's what made Wonder Woman such a, a killer combination. Um, then there's number three, Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Men Tell No Tales with 22 million. Uh, you know, it's one of those things where it's, it's going to be a, a, a notch in the wind column for Disney, another notch in the wind column, but it has fallen quite a bit from where Pirates used to be. You know, it dropped 65% from weekend one to weekend two. Um, you know, and it's going to, like I said, it's going to make Disney some money, but it's a far cry from where the Pirates franchise used to be, and you got to wonder... Uh, how seriously they're considering scrapping sequels or, or what they plan on doing with the rest of that franchise because the law of diminishing returns is definitely taking its toll on the Pirates of the Caribbean. Number four was Guardians of the Galaxy, which is cruising along. It made 9.8 million bucks. It dropped only 53%. Right now, that $200 million movie has made $817 million worldwide. Uh, it's probably got another couple of decent weeks in it. So, you know, they're going to be, uh, you know, that's definitely another notch in the victory column for Marvel. And then there's Baywatch, which continues its sort of sad existence. Uh, you know, last week it opened at number two. Um, 
No, it opened at number three, and now in its second weekend, it dropped about 53%, and it made $8.7 million. It's at a worldwide haul of $68.8 million, and this was a $69 million movie. That's what it cost to make. So Baywatch, you know, it's, 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 it's tanking pretty hard. Um, and then there's Alien Covenant, which, by the way, didn't even crack the top five. It's only been out three weeks. And, you know, Ridley Scott's epic return to the Alien franchise, you know, a proper Alien movie, uh, dropped another 61% and only made $4.1 million, where that $97 million movie, uh, and that's before marketing costs, by the way, uh, made $174 million worldwide so far. So, like I said, I'm pretty sure we've seen the last of the Alien franchise, at least for the foreseeable, foreseeable future. I, I don't think anyone at Fox can be that pleased with these numbers, but we shall see. Um, now, I wanted to give you guys a little perspective on what Wonder Woman achieved here, all right? Uh, IGN, my buddies at IGN have amassed a little chart here about where Wonder Woman's opening stacks against other solo superhero debuts, and uh, it opened at number four. You know, number one is Deadpool, which with which opened domestically 132.4 million bucks. Man of Steel opened up 116.6 million bucks. Then Sam Raimi's original Spider-Man opened to 114.8 million bucks. And then we have Wonder Woman at 103.2. Uh, so please take note of that. You know, remember how I said that these DC movies tend to open bigger than Marvel? Please notice that none of the Marvel introductory movies are, are, are ahead of Wonder Woman. Wonder Woman has already topped all of them. Wonder Woman topped Iron Man. It topped Captain America. It topped Hulk. It topped all of these solo independent launches for the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Now, of course, you can say, you know, all Iron Man and, and these people, they're, they're like B players when you compare them to Wonder Woman, who's one of a, you know, DC's A-list characters who's been around for, you know, a gajillion years and has a huge international following. Of course, she is more of a household name than they were, but I'm just saying it's worth noting that these DC movies, for as much as we shit on them, uh, both Man of Steel and Wonder Woman have topped anything put out by Marvel when it comes to the solo debuts for their heroes. Um, so that that just tells me that there is a huge audience out there for DC. For whatever reason, people love these DC characters, and all they've ever needed is to actually make the movies very, very good, and DC is going to become you know, the king of the hill. Uh, listen, I know I'm getting ahead of myself. We can't call him the king of the hill yet. We don't know how Justice League is going to turn out. We know dick about Aquaman, which is still a whole year and a half away. But right now, the point is, if they can get their quality control underway, DC is going to be a force to be reckoned with. Um, and while we're on the subject of Wonder Woman, we're going to shift away from box office now. Uh, you know, there has been some talk about a sequel. Remember last week I told you that, you know, uh, Charles Roven, the producer was saying that, you know, a script has yet to be written and that does seem to be the case. It has not yet been written, but Patty Jenkins is already saying that it's, you know, she's letting us know about the setting. 
Uh, director Patty Jenkins said that the story of the sequel will take place in the United States, which I think is right. That's what she said. I'm quoting her. She's Wonder Woman. She's got to come to America. It's time. Uh, I remember there was a whole bunch of controversy towards the end of last week, drummed up by conservative news about how, you know, why did they strip Wonder Woman of her patriotic underpinnings? Uh, you remember, you know, in, in the early going there, she used to wear the red, white, and blue, and she had the shorts that were like blue with the little white stars on them, looked like the flag. So there were some people who felt like Wonder Woman has has lost her American heritage, which of course is sort of absurd, because as we really look at the mythology of the character, she's not American, she's from Themyscira, and you know, in, in this movie, it wasn't about America. It wasn't about, it wasn't trying to make a statement about any of that sort of stuff. It was a, it was a general sort of anti-war, love conquers all sort of story. Um, but hey, if you guys want to piss and moan about the, you know, her being an American icon, then have at it. You know, you people are lost. But anyway, um, she will be coming to the United States for anyone who feels like uh, Wonder Woman lost her American roots in the first one. Uh, rest assured that for part two, she will be here. Uh, no word yet on what time period. I hope they don't do World War II. I, I'm kind of hoping they do something a little more like in the 60s or 70s. I feel like those eras have gone sort of underexplored when it comes to the superhero genre. Uh, I thought it was really fun when X-Men went back to, when went back to the 60s with First Class and they almost sort of took on like a 60s, like James Bond espionage tone with Matthew Vaughn and some of the stuff he did with Michael Fassbender, you know, with uh, his Eric Lencher became almost like a Bond-like figure. Um, I, I think it'd be cool if Wonder Woman could go into the 60s or 70s, kind of maybe even like touch on the era when the Wonder Woman TV show was on, the Linda Carter era. You could have some fun with that, especially just since they want to have Linda Carter make a cameo, you know, um, Patty Jenkins has been pretty vocal about that. So personally, I would love to see uh, the Wonder Woman sequel take place either in the 60s during the Civil Rights era or in the 70s. Um, I think that would be pretty darn cool, especially, you know, there was a big 70s. You know, in, in the 60s and 70s, there was a big sort of feminist movement with the bra burning. And there was a lot of like, you know, women sort of coming into their own and not being the housewives that they were up until the 50s. So I think that would be a pretty ripe, uh, fertile ground for storytelling for a Wonder Woman sequel. Uh, also, with regard to the sequel, Patty Jenkins has said, you know, I'm not a big obligation person when it comes to art. You want to do a movie like this because you believe in it. Then I had this revelation in the middle of the night. This is your dream cast. You've created a character that you love and you can say anything you want in the world right now. Then I realized that Wonder Woman 2 is its own great movie. I made Wonder Woman. Now I want to make Wonder Woman 2. It's a beautiful story to tell, an important time to tell it, and with people that I love. So, you know, that could be lip service. You know, she might just be contractually locked up for a sequel. But it sounds like she's approaching it from a place of... She actually really wants to make this movie. She had a wonderful experience making Wonder Woman, and she really wants to make this movie. So that's pretty cool. Um, and then there was also talk about like what it was like to, sh to make Wonder Woman, where she, you know, apparently there was only really one scene that was reshot. 
which kind of flies in the face of my little wild speculation from last week, uh, which I'm not going to go into again. Just listen to episode 16. I had a speculation for how I think they tweaked the ending. But according to her, uh, everything that you see in the movie was pretty much the original plan. That this isn't like the other DC movies that are going to require like an ultimate cut or a director's cut or that, you know, saw some serious rehauling in the editing bay. Apparently, pretty much there, there's nothing there that wasn't meant to be there. And the only shot that was reshot was for the sake of adding more tension to that sequence in No Man's Land. According to her, it was the sequence where we see a horse being whipped and there's some general sort of brutality on the part of the soldiers and the villagers in that area, that she wanted there to be this sort of brutal tension there that really inspires what happens next when Wonder Woman sort of enters the fray. So according to her, that's really the only scene that they added in post. Um, And it kind of goes to show that it sounds like Patty Jenkins ran a pretty tight ship that the Wonder Woman movie was what what it was meant to be. You know, the, they had a script, they shot the script, they made some minor tweaks afterward, and boom, presto, we've got a great movie. It goes to show you what happens when you kind of have everything working and, you know, before you start filming and you have a script you're confident in, you have a competent director, you've got a great cast, you know, you don't need to worry about all kinds of extensive post-production work. Um... And now we're going to move on a little bit since I've been, I feel like I've been talking about DC and Wonder Woman for like eight hours worth of podcast in a row right now. So we're going to move over to their, uh, to their competition over there on the other side of the fence. We know that the Avengers is coming out next year and that's going to be like the big, you know, the next huge Marvel movie, you know, they have a couple of standalone, you know, um, solo movies coming up. They got Spider-Man, they got Thor, but their next big event is Avengers Infinity War. And I bring it up because the Russos just posted an image on their Instagram that showed just how huge this thing is going to be. Uh, they showed a picture as an overhead shot of all the trailers. I swear there's like 40 trailers in the, in the lot for Avengers Infinity War, which is currently filming. And, um, you know, they're just trying to point out, like, look how many actors, look how many stars this movie is going to have. Uh, so that's pretty exciting. You know, it, it really is interesting that Avengers Infinity War, in terms of size and scope, is probably going to be hard to promote. Like, how do you tell, how, how do you help promote a, a, a narrative or a singular sort of focus for the story when there's going to be so much going on in this movie, it looks like. You know, I feel like they're going to have to really find a good angle that doesn't make it look too scattershot, that doesn't make it look like they're just throwing a bunch of shit on the wall, you know? Um, because, you know, w- with the sheer size and scope and magnitude of what they're going to try to do with Infinity War, you know, y- you're not going to want to overwhelm people. So I'm curious how they're going to market this movie. And I'm curious if it can really live up. You know, I hate to be a Debbie Downer, but like, you know, I have a feeling that Avengers Infinity War might not do what the first Avengers did. And I know like we're way, we're still a year off from that. But I just feel like, remember, the, the, the first Avengers is in one of the top highest grocers of all time. It's on, it's on a historic list up there with all these other movies that are sort of titans of Hollywood. And 
I don't know. I, I really, Avengers Infinity War, I just, I don't know why. I, I, I have like this weird gut hunch that it's not going to surpass the first one, which is crazy when you think about it, because the first one, you know, it only had, you know, four main heroes, and then they had, you know, uh, a couple more if you add on Black Widow and, and Hawkeye. But in terms of, you know, it had that core cast of Thor, Hulk, Captain America, and Iron Man. And you'd think that a movie that's going to have every Marvel character ever in it, practically, with Infinity War, would dwarf that. But I don't know. I For some reason, listen, I this is just a hunch. I'm not basing this on anything scientific. I just feel like at this point, audiences are starting to show a little bit of franchise fatigue and a little bit of a, of a feeling of like things are getting a little overblown and we're a little tired of it. Um, yeah, and I think it's one of the reasons why Wonder Woman succeeded because it didn't seem to have that huge of a scope it just focused on this one hero and it's a hero that we haven't gotten to see on screen yet and there was a lot of built-in curiosity and interest for how she was going to be portrayed and the trailers are very sort of straightforward we're going to watch this hero's journey from start to finish and i think that really resonated with people i feel like audiences are starting to grow a little tired of these huge multi-headed franchises with a million heroes and villains and everything is a spinoff of this and a continuation of that. And this is a sequel and this is a prequel and this is a launch pad for that. Like I just kind of get the sense that Infinity War could suffer from some of what we've seen this year where certain big franchise entries are, or, or things that were meant to be franchise starters are all sort of starting, starting to come back down to earth where the box office you know, numbers are starting to come down just a tad. Uh, I'm just, you know, th like I said, this is just a hunch. We'll see next year. But I just have a feeling that there's no way that Avengers Infinity War can actually live up to the hype. That's just me. Call me a Debbie Downer. Um, but as I move away from uh, Infinity War, you know, I kind of want to talk a little bit about movies that aren't franchisey. Movies that I, I feel could be the future, or not the future, but just, you know, it could just sort of, sort of be the antidote for what's going on out there right now. Uh, I don't know if you guys saw the trailer for American Made. It's directed by Doug Lyman of The Born Identity and The Edge of Tomorrow and Mr. and Mrs. Smith. He put out a trailer for his next collaboration with Tom Cruise. It's called American Made. And it looks pretty damn great. I got to be honest with you. I didn't know about this movie. It's been totally under my radar until this trailer came out. And it excited me. You know, first of all, it's based on a true story. Uh, the trailer itself looks fucking bananas. Like You almost can't believe that some of this stuff happened, assuming it really did. Um, and then you, we, you know, we get to see Cruz in similar territory to Edge of Tomorrow, where he's not playing like the gallant hero type. He's sort of playing against type. He seems sort of scruffy. He's involved with like drug running and guns. And, you know, we, we don't often get to see Tom Cruise as a sort of shady sort of scoundrel type. And, it, you know, it, it looks like he's going to be a lot of fun to watch. The, the story itself seems like it's going to be a lot of fun just to experience. Um... And overall, I, I, you know, I feel like I miss movies like that. 
I, I miss movies that are just, here's a standalone awesome experience. Don't expect any sequels. There's not going to be a post-credit sequence. Here's just an awesome two hours to spend in theaters. Yeah, I feel like that sort of thing is becoming less and less now as everything is becoming attached to some sort of franchise. Uh, another one of those trailers that came out, this is actually last week, but I didn't get to cover it on episode 16, was uh, the trailer for Orient Express, uh, Murder on the Orient Express, directed by Kenneth Branagh. Uh, that looked pretty damn good. That's another one where, to me, it just looks like, ooh, a movie for grown-ups that doesn't, you know, a movie that doesn't play to the PG-13, we want to sell you Happy Meals and action figures and, and tie-in cartoons and all that sort of shit with it. Here's just a, you know, here's a self-contained story uh, that we think you'll enjoy. Um, I thought the trailer for Murder on the Orient Express looked pretty damn good, although I hated the Imagine Dragons music at the end. I feel like a lot of trailers have been doing that lately, where they take what is essentially a period piece and they tag on some top 40 pop music song to try to make it seem relevant, I guess, to younger audiences. Remember Assassin's Creed did that, where you were like, so much of the imagery of that first trailer was set during like the dark ages. And then all of a sudden you have Kanye West in there and like the, the that juxtaposition just really didn't work. Um, and there've been a few other examples of that, but with Orient Express, you know, here's this movie. It looks like it's probably set in like the forties. I want to say just based on the wardrobe and all of a sudden it ends with like when the logo comes on, you're listening to Imagine Dragons with that song Believer which like it just it, it's such a clash. It's such a clash. The movie looks so classy and timeless and interesting. And this Imagine Dragon song just seems like, well, we got to try to appeal to the 20 somethings. So let's throw this in there. I, I would have much rather like a very classic bit of score playing over there, just an instrumental, something orchestral, something mysterious sounding since this looks like it's a murder mystery. Yeah, something sort of timeless, not Imagine Dragons. So, really, aside from that, though, I thought Murder on the Orient Express looks pretty good, according to those trailers. So, count me in, and really, really, really count me in for uh, American Made. Um, and I'm sort of curious, too, how American Made will sort of either set the foundation for Top Gun Maverick, which is the official title now for the sequel for Maverick, where, where uh, sequel for Top Gun, where Tom Cruise is set to return uh, to that iconic role. You know, Doug Lyman has said that, you know, he kind of cast Tom Cruise in this because of the legacy of Top Gun. Um, you know, I guess it's kind of fun to see him playing another pilot and being sort of like a badass character again. But, you know, I... Uh, I don't know why this Top Gun sequel stuff to me seems a little hokey. Uh, I, I don't know. This is, again, just sort of a gut thing, kind of just a hunch I have. But I, I just feel like Top Gun 2 is not going to be uh, received or really worth it. Um, I don't know. I, don't, I, I just I have a weird feeling about Top Gun 2 uh, Maverick. Um, speaking of a stuff that... I, I, I don't have a great feeling about, uh, seems to be a running theme on this week's episode. I didn't mean for it to be, but <laughs> stuff that I'm shaky on. Um, the Dark Universe. So we know that The Mummy comes out this Friday, and that's you know Tom Cruise's next movie. 
And, you know, they just confirmed a new character. They just confirmed the character and added a couple more to this overall dark universe. They confirmed Dracula, which everyone had assumed that he'd be in there somewhere because he's like, you know, probably the main movie monster when you think about those classic Universal Pictures monster movies. But they've gone ahead and said that the Hunchback of Notre Dame, you know, Quasimodo, and Phantom of the Opera are going to factor into this new Dark Universe franchise for Universal Pictures. Um, to me, I got to tell you, this, this, this reminds me of Sony all over again with what Sony was doing with their Spider-Man franchise prior to The Amazing Spider-Man 2 coming out. If you guys recall, um, before The Amazing Spider-Man 2 came out, they started throwing out all these different ambitious plans for it. I think they thought that it would add to the hype and get people to want to come and buy tickets because they felt like, oh, this is going to be something big. This is a launch pad. I better come see this now. I, I, I was only moderately interested before, but now that I know that it's going to lead to part three, four, five, and six, and Sinister Six, and a Venom movie, and a Spider-Gwen movie, or like yeah, the Spider-Gwen thing, obviously it didn't happen because she bought it. But remember, Sony started basically leaking all these ideas that they were going to make a whole cinematic universe based around Spider-Man and his supporting players. And a lot of that came out in the weeks and months leading up to Spider-Man 2 coming out. And ultimately, I think it had the reverse effect. Rather than getting people excited it kind of made the sequel seem a little just overblown and people were put off by it. And of course, you know, the rest is history. Amazing Spider-Man 2 came out. It didn't really live up to the hype. Uh, the critics were, te the, the, you know, the reviews were tepid. The re fan response was tepid. The box office was nothing to write home about. And so Sony made a deal with Marvel and now, you know, they've scrapped all those plans and they brought Spider-Man into the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Um... And now I feel like Universal is making the same mistake. I feel like right now The Mummy is not on track to open all that high. If you guys recall, a couple of weeks ago, the projections were at $40 million. And remember what I told you. I called way back then. I called that it was going to open, it was going to get swallowed up by Wonder Woman. You know, and this is when Wonder Woman was only tracking at 65 million bucks, but I still warned you all that it was probably going to swallow up the mummy. Um, and it, it really looks like that's going to be the case because now that Wonder Woman has come out and opened at 103, I'm willing to guarantee you it's going to repeat at number one. It's going to make, even if it drops 50%, 55%, that means it's still going to make in the mid-50s. Somewhere around $55 million is what Wonder Woman's going to make. And Mummy, even if it lives up to those so-so projections of $40 million, which I think it's actually going to be a little lower than that, uh, is going to come in at number second. So the Mummy is going to have a fairly soft opening for a movie that has a pretty decent budget and is PG-13 and has Tom Cruise in it and was probably built to make a lot more money. Um, I think that's why they're talking about Phantom of the Opera and Hunchback of Notre Dame and Dracula. I think Universal is trying to make it 
make this movie seem much like, like a huge deal that people have to get in on the ground floor for. But I think that's going to backfire. And something that I find interesting about this too is both the Sony blunder and what I foresee as Universal's blunder here have a common denominator, and that's Alex Kurtzman. Alex Kurtzman was part of the creative team over at Sony that was trying to oversee this expansion of the Spider-Man universe. And when that went to shit, he now you know, he got hired by Universal to help oversee their dark universe. And here we are once again with a movie that looks like it's going to underperform, but yet here we are talking about all these other characters and spinoffs that are on the way. I think they're repeating the same mistake, and I think Alex Kurtzman is at the center of that. So, look, I, 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 I'm someone who wanted to believe in the Dark Universe. I've been writing about it now for, I guess, close to two years. Uh, but I, I have a feeling we're about to watch another sort of potential franchise starter somewhat stall at its launch. It's going to stumble out of the gate. And I don't know if we're going to get to all these sequels or all these different characters that they're having you think they're going to get to. Uh, I don't think we're going to get the fucking Phantom of the Opera. Uh, I just, I don't see it happening, especially if Mummy opens up and we're doing numbers that are on par with Alien Covenant in the mid thirties and low forties. Um, I just don't see it happening. Uh, speaking of things that that sort of misfired and didn't live up to expectations. Uh, there's also, you know, some sort of post-mortem retrospective navel-gazing about Ghostbusters, which came out last year. That was another one. Came from Sony, and before it came out, they were talking about all this shit that was going to come. There was going to be a sequel. There was going to be a prequel. There was going to be an all-male spinoff. There was going to be, a, they set up a whole thing called like Ghost Corps, a whole subdivision that was there prepared to launch a multi-tiered, multi-faceted Ghostbusters franchise based on the success of uh, last year's Ghostbusters reboot. And how the fuck did that turn out? So first I'll say what Dan Aykroyd said, then I'll explain what really went wrong here and how these studios really got to get a fucking grip on things. So Aykroyd basically came out, I feel bad for the guy, by the way, because he was trying to make a Ghostbusters movie since about 1992. He's been trying to keep that legacy alive, and he finally gets the, you know, gets the new Ghostbusters movie, and it pretty much derailed the franchise's future. So I feel bad for him. But anyway, he put out a, you know, he, there's a quote where he blames the, uh, the non-success of the movie on its budget, and he sort of blames that on the director. He basically says that Paul Feig, uh, you know, spent 30 to 40 million extra dollars on reshoots on stuff that should have been in the movie to begin with that he sort of shrugged off and then realized later on, okay, I guess we do need this stuff. And he basically says that Paul Feig didn't really run a particularly tight ship, that he overlooked certain things and that he spent too much money. Uh, do I find that interesting? Sure. Uh, why the, why would the producer and creator uh, creative you know the, the creator of the franchise suddenly come out and, and have shots fired against the director? That's not a good look. That's not good PR and that's not a nice situation that you want to have yourself in. 
But I think it comes from his frustration. I think it comes from the fact that he knows that Ghostbusters, or at least he feels that Ghostbusters could have been a real gem of a franchise and a real moneymaker and could have been a real win for everyone involved and that ultimately Paul Feig turned in a movie that was destined to not, you know, d- destined to fail. Um, and he did sort of couch all of these accusations with the idea that he loved the movie. Uh, although, I mean, how could anyone have loved that movie? Um, you know, and, and mind you, there, there's this weird sort of retroactive whitewashing of what the, what, how that movie was received. People say like, oh, it underperformed despite its positive reviews. But listen, let's be realistic here. It got 73% on Rotten Tomatoes. That is very, like, faint praise. 73, you know, there's lots of movies that made in the low 70s, you know, that landed in the low 70s that we don't say, oh, but critics loved it. So I wonder why Ghostbusters, everyone tries to talk about it like it was his critical darling. It wasn't. And in terms of cinema score, which, is, you know, really matters, uh, which is, you know, that that's the fan score, uh, it got a B plus. And again, I know a B plus sounds good for anyone who's, you know, graduated high school, you know, you'd love getting a B plus on your essay. But when it comes to cinema score, anything in the B's is considered so-so. Anything in the B's is considered, it was pretty good. You know, that movie needed to be an emphatic, this was very good. It needed an A in order to get people to come out. And it just didn't have that. You know, the people who marketed that movie, that's really one of the areas that has to be looked at when we consider what happened to Ghostbusters. Regardless of how the final cut and the end product turned up, turned out, uh, the marketing was a fucking mess. All right? Audiences have become much more sophisticated nowadays. So most audiences can differentiate between a reboot, a remake, a spinoff, a sequel. Most people know. This movie didn't know what it wanted to be. In the very first teaser, what do they do? They reference the original movie. They say, 30 years ago, four men came together and yada, yada, yada. And they're playing the... So that makes this seem like, oh, I guess this is a, this is a continuation of that. But then the teaser continues... And you realize, oh, so I guess it's not a continuation of that. It sent a totally mixed signal and started us off on the wrong foot. And then as the trailers continued to pour out, further cementing that this was not going to be a sequel of any kind, they're still sending out mixed messages because it's using the same logo, the same overall branding. You've even got Slimer in there who looks and is designed virtually the same as he was designed in the original movies. So it's like, what is that? Have you ever seen a reboot where there's a character in it that carries over? And that's what happened with Slimer. Have you ever seen a reboot where the logos and the overall marketing carry over? And that's what they did with the with the logo, with the ghost, with the red circle, with the slash going through his chest. Like, no, because when you have a reboot, you have to deliver that message. You have to say, this is a clean break. This is a fresh start. Give us a chance because of X, Y, and Z. And they never did that. They never went the route of explaining that this was something new 
or justifying why this something new deserved your attention and deserved for you to give it a chance. So Aykroyd can blame Fag all he wants. He could blame the budget and the reshoots, which, by the way, people within Sony have already debunked and refuted. They say it wasn't 30 to 40 million. That's absurd. It was actually three to four million. So literally, they say it was it was 10 percent of what he claims it cost the, in terms of the reshoots. But re, no, regardless of any of that stuff, the marketers screwed the pooch here in getting the message out on what this movie even was. So I think that's one of the main things. And then ultimately the fact that it ended up being just sort of a toothless, lame movie uh, is the main thing. You know what I mean? You had Paul Fagan there, who is known for making more grown-up comedies that have some bite to them like bridesmaids and he turned in like a very lame pg-13 movie that had no no edge none of the stuff that made the ghostbusters originally sort of shine at all it was just it, it, it was just a mess so i'm sorry mr Aykroyd, but it wasn't the budget it wasn't the reshoots you uh, it, it was a bad movie and it was marketed poorly that's it end of story moving on um and while we're on the subject of like all female spinoffs, uh, there's actually pretty cool news out of Ocean's Eight. Um, I don't know. I feel like that movie's gone pretty silent in in recent months, considering who's involved. But uh, Ocean's Eight is going to be a spinoff of the Steven Soderbergh, you know, Ocean's uh, Ocean's Eleven, Twelve, and Thirteen movies. And they announced that two characters from the original trilogy are going to pop up in Ocean's 8. We already knew about Matt Damon as Linus was going to make an appearance, and now we hear that Carl Reiner, at 95 years old, at ripe old 95 years old, is going to show up. His soul is going to show up, and he shot a, he shot a small scene with Sandra Bullock for Ocean's 8. Uh, you know, I love the fuck out of those Oceans movies. I really do. I know they're a little just kind of mindless entertainment and totally sort of far-fetched. But to me, there's like nothing cooler than those movies in the last, I'd say, 20 years. Uh, number 12, yeah, Oceans 12, number two, was sort of a misfire. Uh, you could tell there that they kind of got a little self-indulgent and that the whole thing really was just an excuse to hang out at George Clooney's villa in uh, in Italy. But I thought Ocean's Eleven and Ocean's Thirteen were great capers, great fun heist movies with likable characters doing cool, funny shit. Um, so here's hoping that Ocean's Eight can pull that off, uh, and it's pretty cool to have Carl Reiner pop up in there. And I, um, I'm I'm a little more intrigued now, um, and I'm curious if Ocean's Eight is going to now get a lot more hype as a residual effect from the success of Wonder Woman. You know, now that all of a sudden a female-led movie has is taken the world by storm, I wonder if Ocean's 8, the people behind it now are going to go, okay, let's start unveiling all kinds of trailers and featurettes and releasing promotional stills. Strike while the iron is hot and people are excited about female-led movies. So we'll, we'll see if that happens. Um, there's also some news on Jurassic World 2. Colin Trevorrow was basically talking about how you know, he, you know, he's not back to direct it. He's just producing this one. Uh, he directed Jurassic World. But he was talking about the director, J.A. Bayona. 
And he was kind of talking about what he brings into this movie. And he says, J.A. Bayona is very good at creating scares. There are things that he'll just do with a shadow or a rustling curtain on a wall. He's so tapped into that kind of fear, especially the fear through the eyes of of a child, which, you know, he and I are just simpatico. Uh, We may be the mirrors of each other. It is by far the most satisfying collaboration of my life. So it sounds like Trevor is really loving working with Bayona. Uh, And I've said for a while that Bayona seems to have some interesting ideas for this sequel. He seems to really want to give the film some real genuine stakes and kind of have something to say. Make it a little more of like thoughtful science fiction unlike the first, you know, unlike Jurassic World, which was sort of fluffy. You know, for me, Jurassic World was like a loose remake of the first movie of Jurassic Park. And it was just sort of fluffy. It didn't really have any bite or any interesting ideas of its own in it. Um, It ultimately did not leave the impact on my imagination that Jurassic Park did. Um, So here's hoping a Jurassic World 2 brings back some of that. Uh, Trevor Oak went on to say, first of all, I, uh, I think the mainstream loves being scared. And I think that the scares in the first movie were made to make children think like they were seeing something horrifying that their parents shouldn't be allowing them to see. I think he was referring to the you know Jurassic Park, Steven Spielberg's seminal original movie in this franchise. Um, He says, we have that a little bit here, but there's also that same big fun adventure, sweeping romantic kind of action in part of the movie that people seemingly responded really well to. We're not throwing it all away, but we're definitely going to some new places. So in short, it just seems like J.A. Bayona is trying to bring some real scares some real stakes to this movie. And in general, he's, you know, he has said things in the past about how he wants to explore the, the ideas of, of science and the modern day and, and the things that, you know, we are doing that we wonder if we should be doing. And, you know, just, I'm, I'm a little more excited about Jurassic world too, knowing that Bayona is making it. Um, but okay, we're going to move on from Jurassic World on to something that makes me a little sad. <laughs> um, you know, Power Rangers is ending its theatrical run. Um, and the final totals worldwide for, for that reboot is uh, $142.2 million. Uh, for a movie that made $100 million, uh, for a movie that cost $100 million, which doesn't account for marketing and promotion, 140 is a fucking, that's a sad, sorry state of affairs. I know last week they were talking about sequels, possibly because the toy sold so well, but I don't know. I'm going to file that under highly, highly unlikely. So for those of you out there who joined me in being fairly optimistic or excited at the idea of a relaunched uh, Power Rangers franchise, I I don't think that's going to be happening. Um, I hate to go back and forth on it, because I know last week I sounded a little more optimistic, but I really just, I don't think it's going to happen. 140 mil worldwide is pretty fucking sad. Um, And one of the last news items I want to touch on here is just a couple more DC bits. Uh, Suicide Squad um, 
you know, Joel Kinnaman said that the sequel may be filming in 2018 and he expects to come back. And that just brings the question, you know, there was some talk that DC might be fast tracking a sequel or maybe trying to make Gotham City uh, Sirens you know, for, for 2018. And it doesn't look like any of that's happening. I mean, let's be realistic here. It's already June. So the likelihood of a DC movie coming out in 2018 other than Aquaman is looking less and less likely. Um, unless they're filming something in secret right now and there's gonna they're gonna drop a trailer on us and there's gonna blow all our fucking minds. It looks like Aquaman will be the sole DC release in 2018 and it doesn't even come out until December of 2018. So really we're looking at quite a gap between Justice League and Aquaman. Um, and you know what though? I'm not like complaining. I, I don't think that's a bad thing. I really think that Jeff Johns and his team over there are assessing, evaluating and tweaking the whole slate and making sure that those scripts feel like what made Wonder Woman click so well. You know, things that are you know, crowd-pleasing elements, things that honor the characters, but sort of you know, help emphasize how timeless and exciting they are to present-day audiences. Um, so if they're taking their time to make sure that these DC movies post-Justice League are as great as they can be, I don't care if Aquaman ends up being the only DC movie in 2018. Give me more movies like Wonder Woman and fuck, you can drop one every two years. I don't care. I don't need a million DC movies. I just need great DC movies. So I just kind of wanted to touch on that because it's really looking less and less likely like there's going to be a DC movie that comes out between Justice League and Aquaman. Then, of course, there's that little, you know, the back of my head, little dark, cynical voice um, when it comes to the DCEU. You know, I, I keep hearing things and I, I'm not even allowed to share them with you. So, unfortunately, I have to be a little vague here. But I keep hearing things about the overhaul for Justice League. And a part of me wonders if they're going to end up delaying that movie. And maybe that's one of the reasons that Aquaman got pushed to December so that Justice League can come out maybe next summer or maybe in the Batman v Superman slot of March. I don't know. This is just, you know, this is wild speculation. Don't write stories about this. This is just me spitballing. But with with some of what I'm hearing, with some of what, I, I, you got to think that the folks at DC are looking at Wonder Woman and going, how can we get more of this into Justice League? Um, and can the six weeks of reshoots that are rumored to be taking place on Justice League, is that enough time to make Justice League incorporate all the positives of Wonder Woman? I don't know. I really don't know. And a part of me really wonders if the real reason that Aquaman got bumped from July to October to December of next year is because they're considering delaying Justice League into the 2018 slate. Um, listen, that's just me fucking speculating. Don't take that to the bank. It's just something I'm wondering because right now you've got to think 
that for Warner Brothers and for DC Entertainment, the most important thing in the fucking world is to capitalize on the momentum of Wonder Woman. And if they have any reason to think that Justice League is going to be a step backwards and put them in Batman v Superman Suicide Squad territory again, they're probably going to delay this thing to make sure it's as amazing as it has every right to be and as any movie that involves Batman and Superman and Wonder Woman and The Flash and possibly, you know, Green Lantern, you know, um, they want to make sure the movie that has all that in it is as wonderful as it deserves and should be. Um, And which reminds me now, since we're on the subject of reshoots, you guys sent in questions for me. Actually, I, 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 I should make that singular. One of you sent in a great question for me this week, and I'm going to answer it. And it has to do with this idea of the reshoots. So, uh, Tavo Borrego tweeted me, you know, seeing how Rogue One and now Justice League went slash are going through major reshoots, do you think the studios will make this a common practice? Um, No. Because while reshoots aren't necessarily a bad thing uh, in terms of how the final product turns out, they are costly and time-consuming. And you have to look at it as a business. These studios are manufacturing products. They have a budget and a timeline. They don't necessarily care about the artistic aspect of it. They want to get their products out to you, and they want them to be received well and to sell well. So, you know, they want something that's going to offer a great return on their uh, investment, and they want it handled efficiently. You know, if you think about it, if you're an employer, all right, if you're a boss, and you have an employee whose projects always seem to require extra time, extra work, and extra resources and expenses to complete their projects, you're probably going to let go of that employee one day. And, you know, this is all to say that the ideal model for a studio is still get a team of filmmakers, get a script, shoot the movie, edit the movie, release the movie. You've got to believe that that is still going to be the model moving forward. You're adding a costly extra step cannot become the norm. It can't be appealing to a studio. It can't be how they want things to go. They can't enter each production thinking, well, we'll, you know, we'll shoot one movie and if we're not happy with it, we'll still have eight months. So we'll just kind of reshoot a whole bunch of it and change it. Like, no, that, that can't be plan A. That has to be the emergency plan B. You know, what I find more likely is that studios will be more hands-on. You know, in order to avoid the need for major reshoots, they're going to be more involved with the pre-production. You know, in the case of Rogue One, it sounded like Lucasfilm just sort of trusted Gareth Edwards and let him go off to make his movie. You know, they, they were happy with the script. Of course, they had to approve of the script and all that sort of stuff. But when they saw his visual aesthetic... When they saw that he was shooting it, you know, as, as the rumors are, he was shooting it almost to be more like a documentary. And he made it seem a little more sort of like bleak and cold and dark. More of that like fly on the wall perspective is how he shot the movie. A lot of handheld. Um, you know, when they saw the rough cut and how it was looking, they realized, hold up. 
This isn't what we were hoping for. And then they went back and fixed it. You know, with Justice League, it all it all stems from how hands off Warner Brothers was with all of the all of the DCEU until the test screenings for Batman v Superman took place. Remember, by the time those test screenings took place, it was too late. The movie was coming out in a couple of months and Justice League was set to start filming 18 days after Batman v Superman entered theaters. And Suicide Squad was already pretty much wrapped. So the revamping of Justice League has been a result of a studio with its back against the wall trying to make on-the-spot adjustments to a product that wasn't being received well. You know, what I mean by that is like Zack Snyder's vision for these movies. They were divisive. The movies were not performing up to what they could have been. And David Ayer kind of made his movie sort of in that same sort of like, I'm going to go dark and weird, you know, mold, and that movie also, you know, was uh, critically panned, and audiences were like so-so on it. Um, so you know, they realized that they were heading in the wrong direction, and they had to pivot. They had to fix things. They had to do a course correction. But they waited too long to get involved. By the time they got involved, Batman v Superman was about to come out. Justice League was about to film, and Suicide Squad was already entering its editing phase. So with regard to the two movies you asked about, with regard to, to Rogue One and Justice League, um, you know, I think Lucasfilm and Warner Brothers realized that when you've got hundreds of millions of dollars on the line and beloved properties mixed in, you can't be hands off. It's got to be a team effort so that no single director can take your franchise in the wrong direction. It's an issue that Marvel Studios has done a remarkable job of avoiding by basically adapting the TV model to its cinematic universe, you know, where the directors are more workmanlike team players all working towards a common goal instead of auteur filmmakers who want to steer things in their own distinctive directions. Um, I know this was a long answer, but the, the short version is no, Tabo. I don't think this will become common. Uh, studios will just become much more involved with the pre-production of their movies to make sure that everything is heading in the right direction from phase one onward. Um, and how does that factor in with TC's idea of getting real filmmakers? You know, that's why I say pre-production. I'm not saying that the studios are going to suddenly be breathing over their shoulder, you know, down their, down their director's necks while they're filming the movie. But I have a feeling during those pre-production meetings, they are going to make damn sure that when they send the director out to make the movie, it has everything that they wanted to have in it, that they've agreed on what the tone is going to be like, that they've locked in a script they're happy with, and that overall it's going to hit all the marks that they needed to. So mainly what I'm saying is here, that the studios are going to get in there at day one for the pre-production and make sure that this thing leaves the station with everything it needs and that everyone is on the same page. Um, and that will allow them still you know, to hire decent directors. You know, we know that they're shooting for the stars with some of these DC movies. And, and, and these are kinds of directors who are not going to want a studio breathing down their necks while they're filming. But you'd have to think that they'd be agreeable in that pre-production phase 
to have Jeff Johns come in and say, all right, well, here's kind of, you know, here's what I need this movie to be as a representative of Warner Brothers. Here's what I need this movie to be. Um, and then kind of going forward from there. Um, so anyway, so that is my answer for this week's question from you, the listeners. And now before we sort of wrap things up, let's look at what is opening this week at the movies and sort of, uh, you know, what, what sort of, you know, what, what I think we should be looking forward to anticipating here. So right now, this weekend has two main movies coming out. Um, there's the mummy and there's, it comes at night. Uh, by the way, I'm seeing the mummy tonight. I'm going to a screening in the city tonight and I will be posting a written review on splash report and a video review on the official L fanboy YouTube page. So be sure to bookmark or, or subscribe to that. So you can see my video review of the mummy. As, as you guys know, I'm very intrigued by how this dark universe sort of, you know, sets everything up and how good it is. Um, and what's interesting, though, and not typically a good sign, is The Mummy opens on Friday. Today's Tuesday, and the embargo is until tomorrow, which is the Wednesday before the movie comes out. Uh, typically, you know, I, I've told you guys this before. But the longer a studio wants to hold on to those reviews, the more anxious they are about the reviews. So this means that they're not all that confident in The Mummy, which really, if you want to circle back to what I was talking about earlier, that makes it even more bizarre and interesting that... Alex Kurtzman and them are still talking about new characters that they're going to be exploring, you know, confirming Dracula and the hunchback and the phantom like universal is pretty much admitting that they're not that confident in the mummy by having the reviews not come out until two days before the movie comes out. Cause they're anxious that the negative press is going to hurt its box office. Um, and the only other one really kind of worth noting that I know anything about really is it comes at night which currently stands at 86%. It is a horror movie. Uh, looks like it's like a sci-fi sort of zombie thing. Um, I really don't know what to expect with this. The reviews are very strong, but as I said last week, you know, I, I feel like a lot of critics don't really get what makes a good horror movie or they don't know, you know, what it is that speaks to horror fans. Because I really, I thought It Follows was shit and some of these other horror movies that have come out that have all this buzz around them just don't really speak to me. And, you know, this whole uh, it uh, it comes at night thing, to me, I just wonder if like it, it almost looks like it might be too much of like a high-minded indie movie looking with Joel Edgerton at the forefront of the promotion. Like, I wonder if mainstream fans are going to give a fuck about this movie. I have a feeling it comes at night is going to be just a tiny blip on the radar, you know, which is kind of surprising because horror movies tend to come out of nowhere with these small budgets and do really, really well. For some reason, I don't have that optimism for it comes at night, despite the reviews. Um, anyway, I think that's about it for what's coming out that is kind of worth discussing here. Um and I got to tell you, I am looking forward to seeing The Mummy tonight. I, you know, I'm skeptical, but I, I'm trying to be optimistic. 
outside of, of getting to see that tonight, uh, in the last week, what have I been watching? What, what entertainment have I been consuming? Nothing new, really, except for The Keepers. Uh, it's this documentary series on Netflix. I've watched the entire series in the last week with my wife. Um, and it's interesting because it's one of these scenarios where they seem to be going for one thing when they started the documentary, and it became about something else. And that that is kind of an interesting thing to watch unfold. If you're into true crime and you're into documentaries, uh, it is interesting how you, know, you can tell that they were probably really trying to investigate the mysterious disappearance and subsequent murder of a nun, uh, Sister Catherine Chesnick, back in the late 60s in Baltimore. And ultimately, the documentary becomes about the high-level corruption and cover-up by both the Baltimore police and even the FBI protecting uh, some members of the clergy and, and some of the atrocities that went on behind closed doors at the Archdiocese of Baltimore, um, of, of Maryland, or whatever the Archdiocese is over there. Uh, so it, it was an interesting piece. Uh, for me, it, it paled in comparison to some of the other great true crime series of the last few years. It doesn't touch Making a Murderer. It doesn't touch The Jinx. But, you know, it's, it's, it's an entertaining documentary. It's got some interesting stuff in there. But um, overall, you know, it doesn't really cover anything that we didn't already know in terms of like, oh, really? A bunch of priests raped people? Uh, you know, I hate to be cynical about it, but at this point, it's sad but true. We've heard these kinds of stories a lot. Uh, and really, the more interesting angle is the cover-up, which comes later on in the, in, the, in the series. So, you know, it wasn't... The Keepers is good. It's worth a watch if you're into true crime, but I was not obsessed with it, and I, I, I don't get what all the hype was about it. Um, aside from that, I haven't really been watching any TV... Uh, my favorite podcast continues to be Case File, the true crime podcast from Australia. If you guys are into true crime, they've just wrapped up a phenomenal series, a five-part series on this, uh, this huge string of crimes that took place in California between 76 and 19, I want to say 86, for like a two-year reign, a 10-year reign where this this person called referred to as the East Area Rapist uh, and all the interesting twists and turns of that case. It was an fascinating, fascinating uh, listen. So Case Files, what I'm listening to, The Keepers of what I've been, is what I've been watching. And I've also, in terms of music, been listening to a lot of Chris Cornell. You know, his death still weighs heavily on my heart. And uh, I've, so I've been listening to a lot of Soundgarden a lot of Audio Slave and a lot of his solo stuff. I've been sort of digging deep into his catalog. Uh, and I've been playing, you're about to be shocked, Zelda. Uh, that's pretty much the only game I've booted up on any of my systems. And I'm kind of in this funny place now where I've been able to beat it now for like three weeks, maybe even four. But I'm like stalling. I'm doing all these different side quests and trying to explore every nook and cranny before I go and do like the final boss battle that brings the story to a close. So I'm still playing Zelda. 
And uh, in terms of this week's recommendation, before I let you guys go, so last week my recommendation was The Strangers. I think it's a criminally underrated horror movie that you should all see if you're into scary movies. But the, uh, the recommendation for this week is Steven Soderbergh's Out of Sight. I think I mentioned it on the old podcast I used to be a part of. But if you've not seen Out of Sight, I think you owe it to yourself to check it out. Um, it's kind of like Steven Soderbergh's and George Clooney's rough draft for what would become Ocean's Eleven. Uh, it's interesting because the score and the overall feel are very similar, but the overall story is much smaller. It really centers on George Clooney's character and his dynamic. You know, he's basically he's a he's a criminal. He's a thief, and there's a FBI agent played by Jennifer Lopez who's on his trail, and it's kind of about their chemistry, their dynamic, and the twists and turns of what happens as he plans this heist. And for my money, it's just a, a great little gem. It really is. You got Ving Rhames in there, too. It has a great cast. It has a great, great cast. And it really feels like while making this is where Clooney and Soderbergh decided this is the direction we're going to go in with the Oceans movies. Um, it almost feels like this is Danny Ocean, you know, begins, you might want to call it. Um, so, yeah, so check out Out of Sight. And top of that, it's the only thing that Jennifer Lopez has ever done where she's any good. Uh, <laughs> I know there are people who hate me for that because she's so popular. And people are like, dude, you're Puerto Rican and Cuban. How can you, how can you talk trash about a Puerto Rican icon like J-Lo? But I, I just think she's one of these people who's like a triple threat who can supposedly act, sing, and dance, who isn't exceptional at any of the three. So that's not much of a triple threat as far as I'm concerned. But when it comes to Out of Sight, her chemistry with Clooney is on fire. And it's the only thing I've ever seen her in where I thought, you know what? She's pretty great here. So Out of Sight is my recommendation for this week. I'm going to be keeping this up as a thing that I do on every episode now where I give you guys a recommendation at the end of each episode. Uh, anyone who actually takes the time to take me up on these recommendations, please tweet at me. I want to know what you thought of my suggestions. Um, and that's it, guys. That brings episode 17 to a close. So as usual, feel free to follow me at I underscore am underscore MFR on Twitter. There's also the MFR L Fanboy Facebook page. <clears throat> uh, there's the L Fanboy YouTube page that I'd love for you all to subscribe to. The Mummy Review will be going up later this week. Um, feel free or please do like, rate, and subscribe uh, and leave reviews when it comes to the El Fanboy podcast. And I will be back next week. So until then, adios. <laughs>